Welcome to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship for all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. Hello and welcome back to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. My name is Justin Shell. I am your host, and I'm excited that today we are going to be talking with Jonathan Thomas. Jonathan is pastor of Cornerstone Church in Abergavenny in Wales in the UK, and we're going to be talking about Calvinistic Methodist fathers. Uh, so looking back at that uh, season in church history in Wales, uh, where men like Daniel Rowland and Hal Harris and others um, saw a mighty work of the Lord and linked arms together to uh, to see the gospel go forth, not just in Wales, but even um, even other parts of the world. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into the conversation now. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship podcast today. Uh, Justin, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to this conversation. You know that we're in the middle of a series where we're looking at past and present uh, communities of faith, circles of friends, sometimes institutions, networks, sometimes all together, mm. who rally around gospel truths, um, see gospel friendships form, and see all of that kind of overflow in renewal, revival, reformation. And so today we are talking about the Calvinistic Methodists of Wales, mm. and um, really excited to hear from you about uh, about the the folks involved there, about what God did through them. Uh, but before we do that, tell us a little bit for for those of our listeners who may not know you. Who are you? Where are you? What are you up to? Yeah, so I'm Jonathan Thomas. I'm a pastor of a local church in Wales in the UK in a, a kind of border market town called Abergavenny. Um, I'm married to Rebecca. We've got three boys uh, kind of under 14, which is great fun. Um, I'm a former union student and former faculty member of union and um, yeah, been listening to the podcast and loving it. Learned lots about Calvin and Spurgeon and all these other men. It's been great. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're going to, I think, make a, a great contribution today to, to, the, to the series. Um, let's maybe, as we turn our attention to, to this, uh, to our topic at hand, tell us, many of our listeners may hear Calvinistic Methodists and wonder if that's an oxymoron. <laughs> so help us understand what, what is that? Yeah, so back in the 18th century, um, when in the States you would have had the Evangelical Awakening, um, and in kind of England you would have had the Methodist Revival with, you know, John and Charles Wesley. Um, uh, in Wales, uh, we had a revival at the same time, and um, they would have rediscovered the doctrines of grace, uh, Calvinism, and mm -hmm. as well, they would have been uh, Methodism in the sense of the churches were joined and united um, and uh, they created a system which 
Um, I guess now has been rebranded Presbyterianism. It's the Presbyterian Church in Wales now. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, Calvinistic Methodism. And a big part of that would have been experiential Calvinistic Methodists. Um, mm-hmm. So people that believe in a felt Christ um, and in a life transforming gospel. And yeah, back in the 18th century, it completely turned the tide uh, for the gospel mm-hmm. in Wales. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. Tell us then, um, as we start to zero in on on the on that movement there during the the first Great Awakening, that that time period, who were some of the key figures in um, in Wales at the time? Uh, and you can cover as many generations or years, but just introduce us to some of the some of the the leaders. Yeah, so Wales was um, a little bit unique in that when the Reformation came, although Wales kind of experienced the Reformation legally, um, in terms of the heart of Wales, it wasn't truly reformed. Now, around the time you get the translation of the Bible into Welsh by William Morgan, uh, which is a phenomenal piece of work and, and puts the scriptures into the people's language. And there are some really good gospel men, but they are far and few between. And so mm. read that, that the heart of Wales wasn't one for the gospel post-Reformation. Mm. But when you come to the start of the 1700s, there are people doing amazing works. Uh, one of the guys is uh, Griffith Jones Llanthauro. Um, I hope uh, the listeners don't mind my my Welsh. Um, but Griffith Jones Llanthauro, he was in the Church uh, of England, the, the Anglican Church. He was a gospel man and... When all the congregations were dwindling and people were trying to say the liturgies as fast as possible, he was preaching for like 40 minutes and people Mm. were traveling for miles to hear him. And he would have hundreds and sometimes thousands in his congregation. Mm. And then he got a burden for education. So uh, Griffith Jones kick-started the Sunday school system and education in in Wales with these Mm. circulating schools, um, which was absolutely amazing. And so he really laid the ground, along with some other people, with the scriptures um, in the Welsh language, with people being able to read and write because of his circulating schools. Mm. Come the 1730s, God's spirit comes down in Wales on certain individuals first off. Um, so 1735, you get a guy called Howell Harris. Um, he lives in my part of Wales, uh, down in a place called uh, Trevecca goes to the local church in Talgath, and the vicar says, it's communion next week, um, be ready. And the vicar knew that people weren't ready. So he said, you know, check your hearts. And mm-hmm. Howell Harris went off and realised, you know, he wasn't right and started to feel conviction. And then he came to church on the Whit Sunday, and this is what he says during the communion service. At the table, Christ bleeding on the cross was kept before my eyes constantly, and strength was given me to believe that I was receiving pardon on account of that blood. I lost my burden. I went home leaping for joy. Mm. And and he was converted, and then he just can't stop telling people. Um, in those days, you had to, you know, kind of have a be a vicar or have a license to teach. So he would just go and visit the sick, tell them a lesson. And then before long, more and more people wanted to be visited. People were kind of crowding around the houses to to listen to him. God was doing something amazing. At the same time, um, in another part of Wales, completely independently, there was a guy called Daniel Rowland. Uh, He was a curate um, in the Anglican Church, um, but 
wasn't interested in the gospel, was a bit of a wild card. Um, one of the people that would just speed through the, the service so he could go and drink with the guys after the service. Mm. Well, anyway, Griffith Jones, this this other kind of older gent who I was telling you about, came and preached um, in a place called Llanddewi Brevi. There's another Welsh name for you. Um, and Daniel Rowland just becomes convinced that he's preaching at him. And I think he gets the hump. But actually, God's spirit comes down. Um, and Daniel Rowland is magnificently um, converted. I mean, he is the curate becoming a Christian. Mm. You've got these two guys, Howell Harris, Daniel Rowland. They're converted independently, different parts of Wales. And again, he now, Daniel Rowland, starts preaching. And he, I mean, they call him the angry clergyman because he just becomes a Christian, gets the kind of doctrines of grace. But, you know, that kind of cage fighter stage of Calvinists. So he did that back in 1735. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, people really started uh, coming to him. And then uh, two years later, um, when uh, Howell Harris was preaching, a young guy comes past, a young medical student called William Williams. Um, mm. And he's converted. He goes on to become the great Welsh hymn writer, probably the greatest hymn writer we've ever produced. And those three guys then come together. And really, they are the three that lead this kind of movement called the Methodist Revival or the Calvinistic Methodists. And, and really, um, it starts independently. Um, but then it starts from 1735, a series of revivals. So there's revivals all over Wales for like the next 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and, and those are kind of the key guys, really. Yeah, yeah that's that's awesome. Let's um, let's turn to so they they were in different parts of the country. Hmm. Um, it, it seems like, am I right, that Griffith Jones, I won't venture to say his last name. Yeah. Um, he encountered both of them. Yeah. Yeah. So Griffith Jones was an older man. And so he became a bit of a mentor to them. So in Welsh, we call him a Siren Vore, the morning star of uh, the Methodist revival, because he really, you know, was preaching the gospel before the revival. And then when they kind of were saved and they were preaching, there was a big complexity in Wales, as with England, in terms of the relationship between these men and the established church and mm. the, the kind of what we call the Anglican church. Um, and so really he was trying to advise them, trying to help them. Um, and there was a few men like that, Daniel Rowland, you know, he was mentored by him, but there was another gent that helped Daniel Rowland because, you know, he became this angry clergyman and <laughs> kind of this older guy kind of came and said, you know, there is grace and, you know, Christ is balm to the soul as well. Um, mm. And so actually, as he gets mentored by this older guy, he kind of he kind of starts to bring in more grace into his preaching. And, and so actually his nickname changed from the angry clergyman to the son of consolation. Um, mm. And people would love to go and, and preach to him. So, yeah, yeah, so lots of different people involved. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Well, tell us then... Um whether it's these these men or others tell us a little bit about how maybe they began to connect with one another or 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 how did as the revival got going um what did relationships look like as they started to form a little bit 
Yeah. So for the first kind of year or so, they just worked completely independently, had no idea what was what God was doing in other parts of Wales, no idea what mm. really who the main players were in, in England. Now, mm. interestingly, they were reading Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> so, you know, around this time, um, Jonathan Edwards kind of account of what had happened had been published in Wales. And so people mm. were reading that. They kind of looked to Jonathan Edwards as the kind of kind of written mentor, as a kind of um, a guy who'd gone through this and thought about it. And they'd heard about George Whitfield, who was kind of big with the Wesley brothers in England. And so initially, they all started writing letters to one another. Um, so letters in Wales, and then they'd meet each other, and then letters across the border to, to George Whitfield. So really, it was reputation of what God was doing, um, and then these kind of letters going on. And ultimately, they would arrange to, to meet one another. So mm. for example... George Whitfield and Howell Harris didn't meet in person until 1739. Um, so that's kind of like four years in um, or kind of two years in from, from Whitfield. Um, and, and it's amazing. Um, even though they'd never met, they they had a love for one another. Um, there's a great account when Whitfield finally comes over to Wales to meet Howell Harris. They they meet in Cardiff, our um, our capital city now. And uh, the first thing Whitfield says to Howell Harris is, "Do you know that your sins are forgiven?" <laughs> Which is a great <laughs> first one. Thankfully, Howell Harris wasn't kind of offended by that. Um, but then later, Whitfield writes in his diary. This is what he writes: When I first saw him, talking about Howell Harris, my my heart was knit closely to him. I wanted to catch some of his fire and gave him the right hand of fellowship with my whole heart. Mm. So there was mm. a real kind of respect for one another and a desire to see who they were in the Lord and what the Lord was giving them. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. So it really, before they knew each other very well, there was something that was pulling them together. Uh, it was really the faith they were they were uniting around mm, hugely because these were very different characters, very different personalities coming from different parts of the country, but yeah. their, their faith in Christ and their love for Christ. Um, yeah. So the language is very heart language. It's very kind of Philippians chapter one, you know, I have you in my heart. It's right yeah. for me to feel this way about you. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit as, um, so that's maybe first meeting, Harris with Whitfield, um, and I know there's this complexity of what God's doing through these men and the revival, and then there's the the established church. Were there were there places where those who did embrace the revival, who were rallying around the gospel, where they began to to gather together to uh, to fellowship in any way? Yeah, so it was very complicated because. At the time, you know, there were nonconformist churches, you know, and there were, um, you know, congregationalists and Baptists and so on. Um, but um, the Anglican Church had all the power. And if you wanted to reach Wales, you needed to be in those churches because they were in every community and they they held the kind of license, the permission to, to preach. Mm. So the advice was always from people like George Whitfield, stay in, stay in as long as you can. Mm -hmm. But the problem was you had people being converted and then they were just coming under kind of 
preaching that wasn't gospel preaching. And they were coming under men who just didn't understand what was happening. And they were being saved in quite magnificent ways, having quite profound experiences. So, for example, Howell Harris often would talk more about what he would call kind of his, um, or, or Lloyd-Jones would call his doubling, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, this kind of baptism of the spirit. You call it what you want. But Howell Harris post-conversion has an experience of the spirit in a in a in a church um tower. He just gone there to have a quiet time. And he says, you know, he experiences the love of Christ in a way that just transformed his life. So so people were having these experiences. So what they decided to do was because the local churches often didn't know what to do with it. And these young Christians didn't know what to do with their experiences. And, you know, as they knew from Jonathan Edwards, you know, these things can lead to excess and be abused. They started groups, I guess what we would call house groups today or community groups. And they literally called them Sayadai experience meetings mm. where they'd come together. They'd have a steward to oversee it, but they would share their experiences. They would share their testimonies. They mm. would ask their questions people who were older in the faith would make sure that they were okay. Um, and so these kind of society meetings just kind of exploded around um, Wales. And mm. so um, that's really where people were put Then They still stayed within the church as much as possible. But for example, um, Howell Harris, you know, he couldn't get into the church. Uh, William Williams, as a young curate, he was just taken to an ecclesiastical court um, and pretty much just had to leave. Mm. Um, so it was it was really difficult for those guys. Um, so they they created these societies. Yeah. Well, I wonder um, that that's kind of semi-formal. It sounds like uh, semi-formal connections, mm. uh, particularly for new believers or or those who have. Yeah, had a had an experience mm. of the gospel, um, gathering for mentoring, discipleship, maybe the way we would put it today. Um, what was there something like a associations as well, where you have, yeah. um, yeah, soci societies, associations? Tell us. Yeah, so you had these. No, I know. So you had these. You had all of these kind of. A, societies these sayadai okay. and then what they decided to do then with george whitfield was to create an association an overarching organization because you know what they realized was yeah you had to get these young christians together and you needed to have a kind of steward to oversee it but then you also needed someone to oversee them um and so uh, they all got together um in a place called watford um it's a tiny little village now um, and they met and they created this kind of this formal association that would look after these groupings. And so William Williams, who we know as a as a hymn writer, actually was a great organizer as well and a superb mm. theologian. And so he looked after them um, and others and he became the assistant to Daniel Rowland. They were all working with each other. And um, yeah, so this kind of association, they'd all come together. And um, then they'd report on the societies, say how they're doing. They'd make sure that people were being looked after. Um, so there was a real sense of 
making sure that people were growing in the gospel and under sound doctrine, um, mm. making sure that, you know, things weren't going right in any way. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so as the Lord is moving um, through, through the preaching of, uh, I'm sure at this point, more than just these three, mm. um, these three key leaders, um, there's starting to be some type of organization of believers together and even ministers together overseeing. Um, tell us a little bit as, as we get a little further into um, the, the revival, what, what do friendships look like with these leaders and maybe, maybe others as well? Yeah. So, you know, friendships go very deep. They work together. They, um, so they'll travel to see one another. They'll write letters to one another. Um, but, but friendships, you know, do get fraught. Um, there are issues There are fallings out. Um, mm. and, and some of the, the main guys, you know, we've already seen a development in Daniel Rowland's theology where he kind of goes from the angry clergyman to the son of consolation. He gets the balm of, of the gospel. Mm. Um, but as they they went on, there was big questions of the relationship to the established church. They, lots of disagreements about that. There was lots of influences coming over from the Moravians and Zinzendorf and all that kind of world, and they weren't quite sure about that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they they struggled with the Trinity. Um, so Howell Harris started to to make some statements that you know, sounded a little bit like patripassionism and and people weren't really sure. So in these kind of associations, then they kind of challenge one another, could get quite heated. They would shout at each other, but then they'd cry and they'd hug each other. Um, you know, there was a lot of emotion. Mm. Um, but, it, you know, it did come to a head sometimes. So, you know, Daniel Rowlands, Howell Harris, um, they had a huge falling out. Um, they really felt that Howell Harris had gone wrong in terms of his kind of connections with the Moravians, his theology of the Trinity. He also had this really strange relationship with a woman. I mean, he was a married man, but he had another woman, a kind of prophetess, perhaps. I don't know. It's all very strange. Mm. And no one really knew what was going on. Mm. Um, and so in the end, actually, they they kind of um, stopped all contact got to such a degree that the association had to step in. Um, and in the end, kind of Howell Harris was put out. Um, mm. He goes off and starts his own kind of, I want to call it a commune. People will be angry at me for calling it that, but a kind of a house, a family of people that weren't quite as mm. family. It all gets very strange. Mm. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, a dark time in the history when these things happen. Mm. But, you know, the gospel and the truth is more important than human friendship in that sense. Mm. So whilst the gospel is the basis of human friendship, um, in the end, um, when someone is seemingly to go away from the faith and is unrepentant and unchanging, you know, those kind of lines need to be drawn. But thankfully, when you read through the history, um, Howell Harris kind of comes back and him and uh, Daniel Rowland's kind of, come back and embrace one another it's a lovely i think i think the story goes that um howell harris was kind of like um kind of 50 years old or whatever when it happened so he calls it the year of jubilee and you know we're just going to go back to to friendship as it was and you know it was difficult but um yeah you know those kind of wounds were were healed 
Yeah. Well, let's, can we maybe sit there for a minute with that, um, with that rift that, and, and feel free to not, not necessarily just talk about that, their relationship, but um, you, you've mentioned in the last couple of minutes, uh, sometimes there was sec- um, disagreement over secondary or tertiary theological issues, n- not the Trinity in this case, but some mm-hmm. of these, some of the other things there, how, how do we organize the church? Um, what's our relationship with the authorities uh, around us? And these are issues that are very much modern day for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Um, what are what are some things that maybe we could learn from, um, whether it's uh, Roland and and Harris or or others involved in in the Calvinistic mm-hmm. Methodist movement? Yeah, I think you know it's amazing that they didn't fall out more, um, and it's amazing that they they kind of work together as as much as they did. I think, you know, the basis of their friendship was the gospel. It's when they got together, they could see Christ in one another, and you know, um, it, th- there's that famous quote, isn't there, by C.S. Lewis when you know he's writing, you know, what is friendship? What is a friend? And he says, mm-hmm. you know, a friend is someone you go to and you say, what you too? You know, you think the same. And I think with these men, they were they were finding other people that had found the same gospel, and they had experienced the same spirit, um, mm-hmm. and they were following the same Christ. And so that was what brought them together over everything else. It was Christ. Mm-hmm. And that I think helped them to keep that as the main thing, um, and that is a huge um, kind of strength in friendship when it's not on anything else, any kind of ecclesiastical structure, um, but it's all about about Christ. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing they did was they met often. Um, you look back and you're like they're having all of these kind of monthly meetings, and they're all doing this on horseback over these rugged Welsh mountains, and you know. But actually, talking face to face was hugely important. Yeah. They wrote letters a lot, um, so there's a constant stream of communication, and so when they hear things, they're able to ask the people directly. Okay, what what are you saying? What's happening? Mm. Um, and, and so when you read their kind of relationships, there does seem to be two things. Firstly, an assumption, okay, let's find out what you've actually said. So it's not kind of, you know, oh, that's it. I'm having nothing to do with you. I'm believing things. But there's a questioning and there's a trying to understand, a kind of benefit of the doubt, which is mm-hmm. lovely. But the other thing is, and I think this is important, they are willing to challenge one another. So mm. when they think they're wrong, they're willing to tell them. Um, yeah. And I think that shows the depth of their friendship, that actually they they were willing to say, hey, hold on, no, you're going down a wrong path here. What you're doing isn't isn't quite right. Mm. Um, and that's, a, and that's a, you know, a difficult thing, but a, a wonderful thing. Yeah. Mm. Well, tell us then, um, you know, we've talked quite a bit about the relationships and, and their forming and uh, their, their, their love for one another and, um, and their, their rallying around the gospel together. Help us understand then what were they hoping for, um, for, for Wales or maybe for the world? I don't know what language they would have used. 
but yeah. um, they weren't just coming together for for fun. <laughs> um, but what what were they thinking? Hey, let's we need to do this and we need to do it together because yeah. why? Yeah, what would they have said? They had a, a hope for Wales and a vision for for Wales. You know, Wales. Mm. I think sometimes the history is overplayed a little bit. Um, you know, sometimes it's kind of presented like there was no gospel in Wales until 1735. Um, but there was gospel and God did do, you know, significant things. But the country, it really was, um, the gospel hadn't embedded itself in Wales in 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 that way, I don't think, into the culture of Wales um, and into the heart of Wales. And so, that's what they wanted. They wanted the gospel to go forth into every community um, across Wales. And there were particular areas um, up in North Wales, for example, was slower. Um, and so they were constantly pushing bounds, um, constantly wanted to reach out. But they also had a heart for the world. The fact that they partnered with George Whitfield shows that they were interested in the rest of the UK. Um, and obviously with Whitfield's relationship with America um, coming over in the orphanages and, and things like that, and also the works of Jonathan Edwards coming over, you know, they would have wanted to see a worldwide um, gospel, um, but definitely a desire. You see in, in the second generation of, of the Methodist Fathers, so you had kind of the first generation, Howell Harris, Daniel Rowlands and, and the others. As you come to the end of the kind of 1700s, they're getting older and, you know, the societies are growing. The relationship with the church is getting much more difficult. And, and really, they I don't think they really wanted to leave. They wanted to stay within the established church. They saw kind of the, the potential. Um, but really, it came to a, a, an impasse. There was just there was just no way they could stay. It just wasn't possible. You had these bishops just making their life miserable. Mm. Um, and so in the end, you get a kind of second generation coming in. And one of the main guys there is Thomas Charles. Mm. And Thomas Charles comes in at the end of the kind of um, 1700s. And uh, he had um, been converted in Wales and then gone over to study in England um, had been uh, an intern with uh, um, with John Newton, you know, Amazing Grace, which mm. was superb, could have had any parish in England, could have gone into a nice evangelical parish in England, but was like, no, I've got to go back to my Wales. And, mm. uh, you know, he'd, he'd fallen in love, to be fair. So there was a young lady he was desperate to come back for. Um, but, you know, he said, you know, I, I see Wales as I see my marriage to my wife, for better, for worse, till death do us part. Mm. And so he comes back to Wales. And and what's lovely is, because he's got all of these friends in England, you can even read them now. He's sending letters to England constantly, back and forth to London constantly, getting funding, getting Bibles printed, you know, mm. getting as much help as he can. And he comes and he lives in Bala, which is kind of North Wales, and around there, he plants churches and sees um, the gospel go forth. There's revivals springing out over there. Um, earlier on, I, I made a bit of a, a misleading comment where I said Griffith Jones, if you remember, started the Sunday schools. He didn't. He started the circulating schools, which were educational. Um, mm -hmm. And he did that through teaching them the Bible. But then Thomas Charles built on that model. He revived these circulating schools and then he started Sunday schools. Mm. 
which um, in Wales now would only be for children, but I think in America would be for children and adults, your mm. Sunday schools. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of invented that in Wales, started this Sunday school system, um, and then was like, so I've taught them to read. I've got them into Sunday school and they're Christians. And then he was like, but I can't get them Bibles. Mm. And um, it all comes to a head one day. Some some people listening to this might remember a story of a young girl called Mary Jones. She uh, loved the Lord, loved the scriptures, couldn't get a Bible. There was one down the road, so she used to travel down every week to read the Bible. Then she saved every penny she had. And then after about two years of saving, as a young girl, she walked 26 miles barefooted mm. over Welsh mountains to buy a Bible. And when she rocks up, uh, it's Thomas Charles's house. When she rocks up, he's like, I've sold out. Mm. And she's just like saved for two years. She's walked 26 miles. She bursts into tears. He bursts into tears. Mm -hmm. And then no one ever tells you this part of the story. He goes, well, I've put one to, to the side for someone else. Have that one. So he does give her a Bible. <laughs> um, but then he's like, this is crazy. So he goes yeah. to London, gets a pile of friends together, says, guys, what are we going to do? You know, we need Bibles and we've got to print them because the organization, the SPCK, they just weren't printing enough. Mm. They didn't believe there was a need. And so he ends up creating this organization. And, and famously, after telling this story of Mary Jones and uh, having a lovely phrase, um, here's some Welsh for you, Justin, see if you can say this, Bible baub or bobble a bead. <laughs> do you want to try that? Bible baub? Bible baub? Or bobble a bead. Or bobble a bead. Ah, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> which, which means a Bible for all the people of mm. the world. Because... He talks about this, and another minister just stands up in the meeting and says, well, if Bible's for Wales, why not for the world? And so actually that's the formation of what we call now the Bible Society. And, mm. and from that young girl walking and Thomas Charles seeing the need and going to London, I mean, Bibles have been translated into hundreds of languages taken around the world. I mean, there's amazing stories of him ordering, you know, 20,000 New Testaments, them being wheeled into a village on a cart and people coming outside and screaming and crying and dancing and rejoicing because mm. the word of God has come. And I mean, he was just selling, selling out. So it's, a, it's an amazing, I talk all day about Thomas Charles, um, <laughs> but um, it's, it's amazing. But Thomas Charles, the other thing he did then was he formalized all of this. So he really, after a massive internal debate, decided actually if the church aren't going to let us worship freely and they're not going to let our guys be ordained actually it means they can't have communion because in those days unless you were ordained you couldn't kind of give communion and we've got all of these societies so he's the one that oversaw then the ability to ordain and set apart Mm. Um, Calvinistic Methodist ministers he kind of wrote the handbook mm. um, which meant then really um, by kind of the parliament had to get involved but uh, the, the Calvinistic Methodists became a denomination a church grouping um, and that's when we came out of the, the Church of England interestingly as a quirk of Welsh history um, the Calvinistic Methodists and the other nonconformists grew to such a degree that by the end of the 1800s, we were kind of the only country in the world that turned around to Parliament and said, right, we don't want the 
the Anglican Church to be the official church um, mm. and actually went for the disestablishment of the uh, mm. Anglican Church in Wales. So now we have the church in Wales, not the church of Wales, um, mm. which is, a yeah, an interesting quirk of Welsh church history. Yeah. Well, as we come near to the end of our time together, I wonder if we could maybe pull some threads together, Jonathan. Um, I, I'm, I'm, we've listened to a little bit about some of the main players in, the, in this movement and, and some of the ways that they um, invested in each other and they invested in, in Wales. Um, help us maybe pull out some lessons for today. Um, what, what could pastors or groups of pastors, even whether that's denominational or informal friends, what, what might be some lessons for us from, mm. uh, from the, the Calvinistic Methodist fathers? Yeah, I think there's so much to learn. I think, number one, love, love of the ministers from the love of the Lord. You know, their love for one another was an overflow from God, you know, as the father was loving the son and the, the spirit, that kind of gracious cascade. Mm. Um, you know, I've been reading Dan Hames and Mike Reeves's book, you know, about God's light shining forth. And that, that's mm. exactly where these guys were because they loved the Lord and they were experiencing Christ. They had a felt Christ mm. when they met someone else with the same heartbeat. They, mm. they just gushed with love for one another. And I think, you know, our friendships will only go as deep as our love for the Lord. Mm. And so have that kind of overflow. I think the other thing is, you know, they, I mean, they, they respected one another. They, you know, they loved one another, but they weren't above challenging one another. Mm. And so, you know, you've got these older men um, like Griffith Jones and, uh, like John Newton, who are kind of mentoring the younger men, you know, telling them when to calm down, um, <laughs> telling them when to keep going, um, and, and across ages, you know. So when Thomas Charles comes in, you know, Daniel Rowland's now an old man is just going, this is God's gift to Wales. He's going to, you know, lead us. And I think we need cross-generational friendship. I think, mm -hmm. I think what it tells us, the, the Methodist Fathers, is, beware when all your friends are your age and at the same mm. stage. Um, so you need that. I think as well, just getting help from friends. You know, they were always leaning on one another for help, um, mm. you know, turning to one another for prayer. Um, that's one of the things of the experience meetings was they would yeah. come and share their struggles. They would come and share about their needs. That's with the association you know, they, they would say, look, I'm, I'm struggling to do this or that. And then together they could work out, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to help you? How are we going to work this through? Um, and that was a lovely thing to kind of um, see in that. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think uh, it, it's all good. I think the warning from them, the warning is to, is to make sure that you don't believe your own hype. And I think... Um, at points, you know, I think Howell Harris, I mean, there's debates, historians debate, why did he do what he did and why? Some say it's because he couldn't get ordained and he was just jealous of those who were ordained. Um, mm. And so, you know, these little things get in. Um, 
And I'm so glad that they were able to reconcile later in life. Um, but I think it's just the warning is no matter how much you love the Lord and you love one another, you can still fall up because we're sinners. And, you know, we have egos um, and really we need to help one another keep that in check. Mm. Um, it's interesting. One of the things that um, there's a handbook to the experience meetings that was written by William Williams Pantakaling. And uh, even though it's in Welsh, you can read it in English. It's called The Experience Meeting. Uh, Dr. Martin mm. Lloyd-Jones's wife translated it. And one of the interesting things I saw in there was when they're giving instructions on the society, um, one of the things they say is make sure that you've got people questioning you who aren't too close. Because mm. when you're surrounded by people who really love you and think the world of you, they overlook your faults and they don't ask you the difficult questions. And, mm. and sometimes they give us too much rope, just enough rope to hang ourselves. Mm. And I think you know, some of the scandals that, you know, the evangelical world has been rocked by in my own evangelical world. I look back and I wonder, I don't think any of us, them, any of us asked them difficult questions. Mm. I think we were so in awe of them. Yeah. We just never dreamed of asking them. And I think what the Methodist fathers teach us is ask the questions, make sure there's people around you um, who, who ask the questions. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, well, final question. Um, actually, it's a two-part question. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Tell us um, if if I want to know, if I want to learn more, maybe I want to start discovering um, more about God's work through uh, this this time and, and these this place and these people. Uh, what could be a couple of resources I could go to? And is there perhaps a documentary in the works that might, <laughs> that might help me uh, be introduced as well? Well, that is a great question. Um, for, <laughs> those of, for, those of, uh, for those people who like to read big books, then there is a two-volume um, book, which is uh, published by the Banner of Truth, um, translated uh, by a friend of mine, John Aaron, um, which is uh, called The Calvinistic Methodist Fathers of Wales. Um, originally written by Jones and Morgan quite a while back. It's slight hagiography, but it's wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want to deep dive, um, those two volumes um, published by The Banner of Truth are, um, are really good. Um, there is a smaller one, um, which is called The Calvinistic Methodists. Um, that's published by the Evangelical Movement of Wales, or Brintirion Press, it's sometimes called. Um, mm -hmm. That's a smaller book. Um, by Williams, um, and that and that's really helpful as well. So those are a great um, introduction. Um, but I would say, if you just wanted to get into one of the characters, uh, my hero is Thomas Charles. Um, I've written a book on him, but that's not the one I'm going to suggest, um, because there is a better book uh, that's come out, um, and it's um, published by Christian Focus, called No Difficulties with God, uh, by Dr. Errol Davis. Mm. Um, a former principal of, of Union. Um, and that's a short little book that just gives you an insight into the one of the main kind of guys in, in uh, Calvinistic Methodism. So no difficulties with God. Yeah. And then, yeah, there is, there is a, a, a kind of video documentary uh, coming out next year, 
um, which is covering uh, the history of Christianity in Wales, particularly kind of 1700s to 1904, um, present day, and looking at kind of the revivals and the blessings, and as well the difficulties and the struggles. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I present that. So if you've enjoyed my Welsh accent, you can uh, you can watch that, um, but yeah, that that'll be coming out, and I'll give you lots of interviews with uh, Welsh theologians and historians, um, mm. telling you about all manner of people and, and things that happened. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well, that's that's about a year away, so maybe you'll just have to come back on the podcast and talk about that when it's uh, when it's released. I love it. Sounds like a deal. <laughs> Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the Reformation Fellowship podcast today and sharing with us about the Calvinistic Methodist Fathers. Uh, I've enjoyed it, and I'm sure that our listeners have been encouraged. So thank you. Hey, thank you. It's been great to chat. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship podcast. We pray that this time together has been a blessing to you. The Reformation Fellowship is a ministry of union. And so all that we do, we hope it helps you to delight in God, grow in Christ, serve the church, and bless the world. If that is your hope, that is your desire, then friends, welcome to the fellowship.